Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. So today's show is the latest in our series of conversations with 2020 presidential candidates. And today we're joined by Eric Swalwell, a four-term congressman from California who formally got into the race last month, basing his campaign largely around the idea of gun control. What follows is our interview, taped earlier Tuesday morning. Congressman, you've been known for your embrace of social media. The Hill once called you the Snapchat King of Congress, and you represent a district that includes part of Silicon Valley. With that as context, what are your thoughts on this kind of ongoing debate within the Democratic Party and more broadly about breaking up big tech companies? An issue I know well. Elected to Congress at 31, your first job is IT help desk, basically helping your more senior colleagues set up Facebook and Instagram accounts. And I did that for a while, and I saw how these platforms are ways to you know, communicate with a broader set of constituents and election time with voters. But I've also seen that as the times have changed, we have not changed our antitrust laws with them. And although these platforms are free, we have to wonder what we are really giving up. And what we're really giving up is, in many cases, our privacy and a lot of information about us that we may not want out there. I do believe we need to undergo a national privacy law effort, just as Europe did in the last couple of years. And I think that is one way to make sure that consumers are more aware of how their data is being used. Is that the model you think we should follow what, what Europe did with the GDPR? I think it's a good start, especially just for the awareness and you know having to opt in when your data is being used. But I, I also believe that we need a national breach notification law The states all have different breach notification laws to win. A consumer should be told when a breach occurs. I think we need a federal law, seeing that there's so much interstate commerce, especially on these platforms. When it comes to companies who are offering goods and services at a lower cost because they're growing, you know, our antitrust laws did not necessarily contemplate that. Traditionally, we would look at, are you putting other businesses out of business and then charging more for goods and services? And here, when you're Google or Amazon, you're seeing the cost are actually coming down. However, what we must, I think, look at is, are these companies using data that they get from their platforms to target and put out of business other businesses? Wouldn't they do that even if they were broken up, though? Like, if you took Facebook and, say, you hived off WhatsApp and you got rid of Instagram, now, it wouldn't be as integrated. Facebook wouldn't have as much data. But it would still, if it just controlled kind of the so-called big blue app, it would still have a lot of information on us and would be able to use that information. They would have a lot of information. That's right. And that's why I think it, it really comes back to the awareness that the consumer has and, you know, what's the ownership of the data and, and what are we giving up? Because that's the new, if it's a free platform, you know, the, the currency to you is, is your data. And, and I, I think having a conversation about who owns data and, and what has to be disclosed is paramount for this conversation. This is a question that folks of those of us on the East Coast who write about this wonder a lot. Do you feel that folks inside your district, particularly folks kind of involved in the tech industry, either as executives or rank and file, has the criticism kind of been um, taken to heart, do you feel, by people, or, or is it still kind of a defensive posture? I believe a lot of my constituents and friends who work at these companies, they have their own concerns about how large these companies have become. And I've talked to Facebook employees who were concerned that they're platform was weaponized by a foreign adversary in our election. And it seemed that, you know, the, the drive to you know, just make profit off of ads that were paid in rubles predominated over patriotism when we needed them to be working with the FBI to stop and counter what was happening. And so I hope there's a lesson learned from what happened in, in 2016 as we go into this next election. And that is that these platforms can be perverted 
to turn us against each other. And there's a responsibility that these companies have. On that point, last year, so maybe at this point, 15 months ago, you were highly critical of Facebook vis-a-vis the Russian interference and Mark Zuckerberg's actions in response to it, I guess you could say. At this point, you know, a year, a year and a little more later, has he and the company answered all of your questions vis-a-vis Facebook and Russia to your satisfaction? Or if not, what would you still want to know, if anything? Well, I, I want to give them credit for, you know, what they've stood up, you know, as far as the bodies they're devoting to looking for interference and the communications they're, you know, trying to have with the community and law enforcement to spot it. I still believe there's a long way to go. They shouldn't be defensive, you know, about how their platforms were used. And I'm looking for them to embrace legislation that I just introduced yesterday called corporate duty to report. So if you're a social media platform and your platform is being used as in, to run an interference campaign, you have to tell the FBI. It's similar to legislation last year that related to human trafficking. If you're an internet company and your website was being used for human trafficking, there was a duty on you, an onus, to tell law enforcement and take the posts down. And my legislation will do the same because, again, we saw in 2016, there was all this traffic that was turning Americans against each other, being paid for in Russian currency, and no one told anyone about it. And I believe that there has to be a duty now on social media companies to do something when they see this. Congressman, let's move on. You're you're centering your campaign, your presidential campaign, a lot around gun control, and and in particular, a desire to reinstate the military-style assault weapons ban and to buy back the current supply of assault weapons that are out there. On that point, how would you enforce it? If I had a military-style assault weapon in my bedroom, how would you enforce that I give it up to the government, whether I get paid back for it or not? These weapons are, are different than a, a long rifle to hunt with, a shotgun you know, to protect your house with, or a pistol to go to the range and fire off. These are weapons that strictly belong on battlefields. And so my ban would not only ban future sales, and I'm the only candidate that actually goes as far to say that if you think we should ban future sales, then let's do something about the 15 million in our communities today. And so there would be a buyback window. So for, for market value, the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearm Agency would buy back these weapons. If you don't want to sell your weapon back, you can restrict its use to a hunting club or a shooting range. So they could be possessed there if it's set up in a way that they could keep those weapons there. Otherwise, it would be like any other contraband. Like if you had bomb-making materials that you weren't supposed to have and the police had a search warrant for your house, then you could be charged with possession of an assault rifle. There's not going to be any roundup. There's no, I'm not calling for any force to go door-to-door. It would just be added to the list of you know things you can't have in the United States, whether it's heroin, bomb-making materials, or an assault rifle. Uh, you could be charged for possessing. A lot of gun homicides and obviously suicides in the country are, are done by more traditional firearms, those things you were just yeah. mentioning, you yeah. know, regular pistols, rifles, etc. Do you believe that we as a country, from a legal perspective, should we be moving toward legally mandated, basically smart gun technology, assuming the technology could be perfected, something along the lines of whether they'd be fingerprint sensors or RFID chips, something like that on all firearms, not just assault weapons? Yeah, I I would like us to uh, have a grant program for communities to start implementing this, not just on to be able to use the firearm, but for storage. You know, in so many cases, it's a stolen firearm that gets in the hands of the wrong person that leads to a death, or it's a child who knows where their parents' firearm is and plays with it and, you know, the accident happens. And so uh, there's a lot. I'm familiar with smart tech technology. Uh, Ron Conway is a leader in this out in Silicon Valley. He's funded a lot of these groups. You know, I'm supportive of the mission to do that. I want to just explain to why, you know, assault rifles 
you know, are a priority for me because, yes, they account for fewer than 10% of gun violence deaths in America. But if you talk to students in their classrooms today, the presence of assault rifles in our culture account for 100% of the fear that they have. And that fear is immeasurable, but it's taking a toll on their mental health as they're being asked to prepare for the skills they need in this new economy. But they sit in class just riddled with fear because they believe that these weapons are in our community and could walk into their classrooms any day in the hands of a shooter and take their life. Congressman, you sit on the Homeland Security Committee, and and I'm wondering, uh, as you probably saw, San Francisco recently started to move to ban facial recognition technology by municipal government in San Francisco. But obviously, uh, TSA, for example, is still able to use it, including at San Francisco International Airport. What are your thoughts about government use of facial recognition technology, particularly given what we've seen or begun to see a little bit in China? Yeah, well, it's all over China and what, what they call these smart cities. And if you're doing it just to track people and and to suppress freedom, you know, I I oppose it. If you can justify a safety reason for it, you know, I'm okay with it. But that's what China's doing, right? I mean, China claims it's a safety reason that, you know, it's stopping terrorism. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, some of the the videos where, you know, they could find someone in fewer than five minutes. And, you know, these are just, you know, walking through city plazas. And, you know, if if you can't draw, you know, a, a correlation between a crime rate And, you know, where you have this technology, I think it's really just a big brother environment that you're creating, and I would oppose it. But I I do think in limited areas where, you know, it it could save lives, particularly at transportation hubs, you know, or or places where we, you know, convene and don't want to be vulnerable, you know, I would consider it. But I don't want to give up, you know, the freedom to move freely and without, you know, having my data collected anywhere. Final question for you, which is a bit of a horse race question, but but not so much about the polls. But with over two dozen Democrats now running for president, I understand the whole, you know, the more the merrier concept. But at some point, should there be a concern that so many candidates could hurt Democratic ability to hold on to congressional seats, local seats, just because so many of the party's leading lights are spending most of their time in Iowa and New Hampshire? Well, you know, we're going to have the first debate in a couple of weeks, and this field is going to start to significantly winnow. And the hope, though, is that candidates that bring their constituencies to the debate, that the constituencies will continue even if the candidates and their campaigns do not. I see a path for a candidate, myself, who's the first in the family to go to college, has two kids under two, working with my wife to pay off our student debt. Now, we know why people work hard and what they want it to add up to. And having a working class candidate who also has experience in Congress, especially in the Intelligence Committee, can, I, I believe, you know, make sure that hard work means something in all places and all people in America. That's my candidacy. And also, as you mentioned, the top priority as far as our safety in our communities will be to seek to end gun violence. And I see a pathway to the nomination for that. If I'm not the nominee, I will do all I can to work to support the nominee because beating Donald Trump and saving our democracy has to be the top priority. You talked about that field possibly winnowing at some point. Do you and your campaign have a metric and maybe even a date, a whether it's tied to polls or fundraising or something else to say, I am staying in or not staying in by X date because of this? We already hit the first waypoint, as I would call it. I announced early April, and within three weeks, we qualified for the debate. If I hadn't qualified for the debate, you know, I, I wouldn't continue. I don't, I don't think anyone, any candidate who does not qualify for the debate, I believe should consider getting out of the race just so that you can continue to you know, see that the field narrow and we can get a nominee as soon as possible. And so the, the debate thresholds, I think, will continue to go up from what we've been told. And I think that'll be helpful to you know reduce the choices, but keep the excitement 
you know, high as we get toward a nominee. Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you so much for your time. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national strawberries and cream day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.